You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. Today's reading is from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1. And if you've got one of our church Bibles, you can find that on page 1036. And if you want to quickly run and grab a Bible there, you can. So Ephesians chapter 2. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously lived according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. And we were by nature children under wrath, as the others were also. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses. You were saved by grace. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is God's gift, not from works so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. So then, remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcised by those called the circumcised, which is done in the flesh by human hands. At that time, you were without Christ, excluded from the citizenship of Israel and foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus... You who were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of his hostility. In his flesh he made of no effect the law and consisting of commands and expressed in regulations so that he might create in himself one new man from the two, resulting in peace." He did this so that he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross by which he put the hostility to death. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. With you uh, this morning, when Jonathan rang and uh, invited me down to share with you, I thought, yeah, I can do that. And then as I got here this morning and I sat in the prayer meeting, I said to myself, I'm preaching to the converted already. Um, everything that I want to say about reconciliation has already been uttered in prayers this morning uh, for this service. So uh, thank you, Jonathan. I bring greetings from my wife, Kathy. Kathy's at home. Uh, she's playing Nana uh, for the weekend. We've got four grandkids, two of those have got severe cases of autism, um, and it's a bit of a challenge for our daughter to look after those. So uh, the very reason why we moved to Newcastle was to support them. There's a school there 
uh, where our two uh, autistic boys go to, uh, called Spectrum, and that's all they work with is autistic children. Uh, it's interesting that this subject of reconciliation, nowhere in the world has the word reconciliation been uttered more than in this country of Australia. We are, we are a multicultural society, a place where many ethnic groups come to make these lands their home. Someone once said that Australia is a melting pot. And when I hear words like that, I ask the question, what do they mean? Quite often, it is a comment that refers to something that will arise out of uncertainty. In covering our subject today, we're going to consider together the topic of Indigenous reconciliation. And as I begin, I want to say that I'm a little bit uncomfortable with the title, and I'll tell you why. Indigenous reconciliation suggests that Indigenous people have an issue with everyone else that has made Australia their home. I'd much rather prefer something like a reconciliation that works, because that's what we have portrayed in the scripture. If I was to ask you this morning, what is the Bible all about? Then my brief summary, and it's very brief, I do it in two ways. I say the Bible is about God's plan of redemption from ma for mankind from eternity past to eternity future. The second thing I would say is the Bible is all about reconciliation. God doing a work of grace in people's lives from eternity past to eternity future. And we're going to have a bit of a look at that this morning. We know that reconciliation that has been talked about and pushed around in Australia really doesn't work, does it? Of course it doesn't. But there is a reconciliation that does work. And we are encouraged to consider this this morning. As we do this, we're going to contrast what I call secular reconciliation and a biblical reconciliation. What does the Bible have to say? And there is a difference, as you'll see as we go along. As we do um, this, you'll notice that there is a real difference between what the Bible says about reconciliation and what people in this country are espousing. We'll consider that uh, what is our, the church's responsibility in this field and where should our focus be? Should it be on what people are saying out there that we should be working towards? Or should we be doing something completely different? Some years ago, just by way of uh, personal um, story, I had taken on the responsibility of the National Chair of the Aboriginal Evangelical Fellowship of Australia. At the time, the fellowship was not in a good place. The AEF was set up in the late 60s to bring people together for fellowship across denominational structures and across ethnic groups. About 20 years ago, the fellowship began a slow downward spiral and became an ultra-conservative organisation. Like many others, I was concerned that something was happening to the organisation that I had come to know and love. AEF was slowly beginning to display characteristics of a cult. Many within the organisation, including myself, thought that if we were to allow this slippery slope to continue, then who knows where this would end up. The introduction of rules like, if you want to grace our pulpits, um, then you need to preach from the King James Version of the Bible. Now, don't get me wrong, I think the King James Version of the Bible is a great text. 
But when we put into place rules and regulations to say that that's all you can read from, it's a bit of a, becomes a bit of a problem. People at the head of the organisation were leading the organisation down the road that was unbiblical. And they were militant in their efforts to maintain what they believed to be biblical orthodoxy. During this period, I was elected as the president of the organisation and we began the restoration process. As a result, those who opposed my election became extremely critical and hostile towards me, even to the point that my life was threatened by those who claimed to name the name of Christ. Such folk were militant in trying to protect what they believed was biblical. I was receiving phone calls all hours of the night, especially after I was ordained an Anglican deacon and a priest. According to my protagonists, I was a servant of the devil. I'd aligned myself to the one world church. I promoted ecumenicalism. I was in error and used corrupt versions of the Bible. Friends coming from an evangelical conservative background, as I look back on these things, I can see why they would say such things. Was I involved in ecumenicalism? No. Did I encourage the unity of God's people? Yes. Was I a part of the One World Church? No, not as they understood it. I was a part of God's church, the invisible church. Did I support the unity of the body of Christ? Yes. I came to believe that God calls from the throngs of humanity a people for himself. And those people go to different churches. You see, folks, the unity that I was encouraging was based on theology and not socialism or any other ism. I came to know that I, as a believer of Christ, became grafted into the family of Abraham. Did I use a corrupt version of the Bible? Well, according to my protagonists, who knew nothing of the original biblical languages, I did. Such people were King James only people. According to them, they would say the King James Version of Scripture um, just dropped out of heaven. And they would say things like, if it was good enough for the Apostle Paul, then it was good enough for me, which was absolutely crazy. Friends, I was attacked on many, many fronts. I've had to change my contact details on a number of occasions. What was even sadder was many of my detractors belonged to a family that I grew up with. They were family. Their father and I were best of friends. It was so bad that I had to uh, block them from calling me. And I did so for many, many years. When I'd learnt that my old friend, their father, became very ill and wasn't expected to live, I thought to myself, I would like to see him before he was promoted to glory. So with much fear and trepidation, I rang the family, not knowing how, the, how they would respond to my approach, and asked if I could visit him as they were caring for him at home. To my surprise, they agreed. At the time, I wasn't sure how my visit would go. I was still afraid that I might be attacked by them. So I approached with caution. When I arrived, the family welcomed me in and I was able to spend some time with their dad. 
His adult children and I, two females and a male, embraced and cried together as we sat by his bedside. It was a real time of healing. And as I look back to that time, I begin to, began to realise that, hey, their sick dad was a catalyst for reconciliation between me and them. We who were once had a relationship, that relationship was severed, and it wasn't until their father became unwell that God used this situation to bring us back together again. Friends, what a picture of reconciliation. So this morning, I want us to open our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2, and we're going to reference, make reference to it. Uh, we're not going to go in depth to it, otherwise we're going to be here all day. Um, but we're going to look at this subject of a reconciliation that works. Just a little bit of background to the uh, particular epistle. Ephesians was one of four epistles written by the Apostle Paul from his Roman jail. And someone said it is the loftiest of all New Testament literature. It identifies uh, the believer as enjoying the blessings of heavenly places in Christ. The letter identifies the wealth, the worth and the walk of the child of God. You know, it's interesting that if I was to ask you, what is the audience of the Bible? My friends, the Bible was written for the believer. It contains a message for the unsaved, sure, but it was written for the believer. Hence the reason Paul writes to the church at Rome, he writes to the church at Corinth, he writes to the churches, the church at Ephesus, Thessalonica, and so forth and so on. And so as we read scripture, what we, try, what we do quite often is we tend to appropriate biblical teaching to people outside the church, where really it's God's message to us and how we should understand the salvation that we've been brought into and how that should affect our lives. The letter, and if you want a bit of an outline of the book, um, the letter identifies the wealth, the worth and the work, walk of a child of God. And we know that the letter was written by the Apostle Paul. We can read that in chapter 1, verses 13. Though his name only appears twice, he is referred to in the first person, person pronouns, some 30-odd times. We know of Paul that he was an apostle. We can read that in chapter 1, verse 1. He was a prisoner, chapter 3, verse 1, and chapter 4, verse 1. The recipients of the, the letter was the believers, at Rome, so everything that Paul is writing here is for them, those who, who know Christ and have come to saving knowledge of Christ. It's not for everyone outside that particular group, but he's writing to them specifically. The church at Ephesus was established by church, Paul on his second missionary journey. We can read about that in Acts chapter 18. The church was pastored by Paul for three years during his third missionary journey. We can read about that in Acts chapter 19. It was a home for some of the greatest first century Christians, the Apostle Paul, Aquila, Priscilla, Apollos, and Timothy and John. Paul considered the church as being faithful. And we read about that in chapter 1, verse 1. The date and place of writings. Paul, as we mentioned, wrote this letter from a prison cell in Rome. It's probably written about 61 to 62 AD, and the purpose of the book was to remind the Ephesians of the spiritual blessings they have in Christ, to encourage them through his prayers 
on their behalf, to show them the nature of the church, to challenge them to live as Christians, to prepare them for spiritual battle. The keys of the book are threefold. The key thought is saved by grace. I love that because that's basically a summary of reconciliation and what it's all about. The key phrase is in Christ. And you can see that. It appears ten times throughout the book. The key verse is chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved. Folks, grab, grab hold of that. Because our salvation, your salvation comes about because of a gracious and merciful Lord. In chapter 2, we have the reconciliation chapter that we're looking at. It teaches us that in verses 1 and 3, we were ruined by sin. You know, 1 John 1, 9, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. No one is exempt from that. In chapter 2, verses uh, 4 to 10, we were redeemed by grace. We know the difference between grace and mercy, don't we? Because they're both used interchangeably in Scripture. Mercy is God withholding the punishment that we deserve, whereas grace, on the other hand, is God giving the, to us the good things that we don't deserve. And in regards to us, it's grace and mercy that is at work bringing about our redemption. Verses 11 through to 16, we are reconciled by God. Verses 17 to 22, we are restored by Christ. Let me try and define what reconciliation is for you. Over the many years, um, many have played around with this word reconciliation. We've heard the word bandied around this country for many, many years. But what of reconciliation? How are we as a church supposed to understand this word? Is it the same as what the world has been trying to espouse when it comes to bringing people together as one? Back in the 80s, there was a walk for reconciliation over the Sydney Arbour Bridge and it was plastered all over the TV on the news channels. And you guys would have seen that. 80,000 people walked across the Harbour Bridge in Sydney to display a sense of unity between Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal people. This work displayed a yearning for our country to unite on the grounds that there were certain things that needed to be done if we're going to enjoy a better relationship in moving forward. But have we achieved that? That's the big question. Have we achieved that? And if not, is the process of reconciliation as it has been presented to us, is it flawed? Or is our understanding of true reconciliation wrong? When I read the Bible, I begin to understand that Bible defines reconciliation as a work of God. So there is two differences. There is secular reconciliation, and that reconciliation says that if you do something for me, and I do something for you, we can have a relationship. Yeah? If you do something for me and I do something for you, we can have a relationship. Secular reconciliation. Biblical reconciliation, it says, it, it says it's not what you do for me or what I do for you that brings about a relationship. It's what Christ has done for both of us. So it removes the human element. God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. 
My friends, that's the reason why it works. And that's the reconciliation that we need to be working for or towards. So from eternity past to eternity future, the Bible encapsulates the creation, the fall, the promise of a solution for sin, the cross, and then finally the consummation of the church. Isn't it a wonderful book? It's got everything that we need to know about God's plan for the redemptive cause and for his humanity. And hence the reason we should read it and get to know it well and not place it aside like a lot of churches are doing today because of the culture, the social, social issues that our community face. You know, recently I was up in Cairns. It was only two, a week and a half ago. And I was up there at a meeting for NATSIAC, National Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Anglican Council. So it's the indigenous body that represents the church. And whilst at that meeting, I, I began to realise that these guys are not on the same page as me. I wasn't a nominated member to that council. I was an invited guest. So I wasn't able to, you know, speak when spoken to and I wasn't able to vote and those sorts of things. And I sat back and as I observed that meeting and as it unfolded, I, I began... I was concerned that our church is beginning to be led by progressives and liberals. Never once did they open the scriptures. When they had devotions, they told dreamtime stories. You know, and I came away from that place. There was a yearning in my soul that these guys, if this is the leader, leaders of the uh, indigenous Anglican church, then we're in trouble big time. And, you know, sadly about that, not only is the Indigenous church uh, in trouble, but so too is the wider church. As I move around the country, I see similar things happening. The reconciliation that the Bible espouses is that God making things right in order that people can have a relationship with himself. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19 says this, and Paul says this to those readers. He says, that is, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their sins against them. My friends, and that is reconciliation in a nutshell. That God, the creator of all that is, was bringing about a right relationship with his created humanity. Now, let me say this. A lot of my people will turn around and they will say, we can't have a reconciliation because we've never had a, a relationship to begin with. So how can you have a reconciliation? They say, we need to have a conciliation. And so how can you have reconciliation without a conciliation, without being one in the first place? And so they struggle to understand what Reconciliation is truly all about. So today we consider the subject of reconciliation. We do so on the basis of what we just read in Ephesians chapter 2. That God was in Christ, or in 2 Corinthians, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. So in saying that this morning, the first thing that we should note is that our, the people of God, our reconciliation has nothing to do with us. Not a thing. Not even the faith that we have 
is something that Jonathan can, he can preach till the cows come home, but unless God does a work in that space, you will never come to an understanding of God's grace and mercy that brings about salvation. Not at all. It is a work of God. God places within us the capacity to believe, the capacity to have faith. Dead people can't respond, can they? The Bible says we who are dead in our trespasses and sins. Something needs to happen in order that people might rise up. And we know that God, through his spirit, has done a work in placing within us the capacity to believe. Secondly, reconciliation is available to us because of God's mercy and grace. Note verse 4. But God who is rich in mercy... Because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. See, it's all about him. It's his mercy. It's his grace. It's him doing the work of grace in our lives. And my friends, once we get it right on the vertical, then it becomes automatically on the horizontal. You can pick and choose your friends, but you can't pick and choose family. I'm encouraged as I walk through these doors this morning, I see people from various ethnic groups. It's a way in which the body of Christ should function. God has a people from every nation, and he's got a view of his church as being multi-ethnic, and we'll have a look at that a bit later on as well. So how does this work, you might ask? Well, through the death of Christ at Calvary, he who knew no sin became sin for us. So biblical reconciliation says it's not what you do for me or what I do for you that makes us one. It is what Christ has done for us both. See the difference? There is a real difference. And so what is the church's response? How should we uh, function in a society where people are saying, look, we need to get together and we need to be one with Aboriginal people or other ethnic groups in this country. Hey, we need to proclaim the gospel because that's where true reconciliation sits. And so all our efforts and energies need to be, need to be put into that. You know, not going out there and doing everything else that everyone else is doing. The secular organized or the secular um, organizations throughout the country, they can do that. Let's keep our focus on preaching the gospel and getting people into the kingdom. So it's not what you do for me or what I do for you that brings about our oneness. It's what Christ has done for both of us. The next thing I want to say is this, that reconciliation is not unity. It's not unity. Even biblical reconciliation is not unity. As you read the Gospels, who was blooming all the time? Wasn't it the disciples? Who's going to sit at your right hand when you come into your kingdom? We are told that they had some great debates about stuff. You know, Paul and Barnabas on their second missionary journey um, they had a, such a great disagreement. Barnabas went in one direction, Paul went in the other. Was they reconciled? Of course they was. But they was, there were still issues that they had to work through. 
And God had a purpose in allowing that situation to happen. Barnabas took the gospel in one direction. Paul took the gospel in another direction. And as a result, more people came to faith in Christ. Now note what Paul says. As for you, who's he talking about in chapter, uh, chapter 2 verse 1? The believers at Ephesus. You were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live. When you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time. Note that Paul implicates himself. Jonathan, a good lesson for us guys who are involved in ministry. Uh, acknowledge that we're all sinners. And that we did live previous lives according to the pattern of this world and so he says that we, we were gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts like the rest we were by nature deserving of wrath there you go if God was to give to us what we deserve where would we be? What would that look like? It'll, it would look like that we would have eternity without God. But I love the transitions words. Look at it there in verse 4. But because of his great love, the word but, but because of his great love for us, God who was rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. So God there taking life and placing it within us that we can respond to his gospel and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus and verse 7 says in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace starts off with mercy ends with grace goes on to say, for it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this is not of yourselves. Those of us who open the scriptures, we can preach till the cows come home. We can visit until the cows come home. This is why prayer is so important, folks. We can do all those things, and we can do it well. But unless God does a work of grace and mercy in people's lives, they've got Buckley's chances of having a relationship with God. You know, I love praying with these guys this morning. There was probably about six to eight of them in there. I've never been to a church where that's happened with that number of people. And that was encouraging to see. I want to go away with some new things that I've praying with the kids before they go off to their children's program. Man, I've never seen that before in my life. What a wonderful thing, getting mums and dads to pray with their kids before they go off and be taught the scriptures. And Paul goes on to say, it's not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Quite often we get people who will read chapters 2, verses 8 and 9. But they forget chapter 10. For we are God's handiwork. God is at work in our lives. We are created in Christ Jesus to do what? To do good works. 
quite often we think that the role of the pastor in the church is to do everything. He's a paid agent on the ground. It's his responsibility. My friends, his role is to equip the saints for the works of service, to encourage and to immobilise you so that you can participate in the life of the church. That, and, and God has skilled people up, hasn't he? With many different skills. And we should be using those for his glory. And we should not turn away from serving him within the life of the church. And so Paul goes on to talk about circumcision and uncircumcision. And God had chosen a people for himself, Israel, and he marked them by this act of circumcision, circumcision of the flesh, it says. Um, and But, again, a transition word there in verse 13. It says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh. Note this, this is important. By setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. When Christ came to die, he came not to abolish the law but to fulfil it. That's his role. It wasn't to abolish the law but to fulfil it. His purpose was to create in himself a new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross. My friends, that is the message of the Bible. But what does this look like in terms of how we view one another? And I said before, you can pick and choose your friends, but you can't pick and choose your family. So whether or not you like it, this big black man up the front is your brother. Okay, that person from a different ethnic group sitting next to you are your family. And when we understand reconciliation from that position, it places a bigger demand on our resources, does it not? You know, if anyone is in need, our responsibility is to provide for that need. You know, when Paul talks about visiting prisoners in jail, he's not talking about visiting everyone. He's talking about those who have been locked up for their faith. Yeah, and caring for them. And so we do that. We care for one another. Places a bigger demand on our resources as well. The very reason why God has entrusted to us resources is that we might use that for the benefit of the gospel and helping other people to faith in Christ. I've got a friend here in Melbourne who's a multimillionaire. And you can see that he, how good of a friend I am to him, because uh, I don't have anything. Uh, but he's a multimillionaire. But you know, he spends a lot of his wealth on gospel ministry. Loves Jesus, gives away millions every year. And you guys will know him because he, he uh, provided a gift uh, to the Victorian government. And I'm not going to tell you what that gift was or what that was about because you'll probably try and put two and two together. And I don't you know who he is. But he's a great guy, loves Jesus, wanting to see the gospel proclaimed. And uh, anyone heard of the organisation called Australians Together? Hey, get on their website. It's a great website. 
and it talks about how we as God's people and as we as the community of Australia can forge a path forward together and what responsibilities we have. Well, he funds the Australians together and they receive millions of dollars of funding. God has entrusted him with wealth that the gospel might take shape. So we have a mutual responsibility to be encouraged and build up one another in the faith. It's not just your responsibility to me. It is also my responsibility to you. We are to treat our brothers and sisters in Christ with the same love that God himself has lavished on us. It, it places a bigger demand on our time and resources. Friends, that is why I love BCA. It's God's people living out the oneness that they have because of the work of God in their lives. It is the church functioning in such a way that expresses love to those who are struggling spiritually in remote and isolated locations around this country. BCA has 30, uh, sorry, around about 50 workers in different locations around the country where churches can't sustain themselves, both financially and with personnel. The wider church gets behind the organisation and say, hey, we want to partner with you guys. We've got a responsibility to those in our isolated and remote locations for them to proclaim the gospel that people in those areas might hear the wonderful things that God has done for them. It is our responsibility to look to organisations that are doing mission and working out how we can further the gospel through these organisations. BCA represents a caring and sharing of the resources that God has entrusted to his people. The big, the big question is, and that we must answer this morning, is are we living out the oneness the way God wants us to live? Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that from this meeting you go to your uh, parish council meeting and you, you know, set aside a whole range of money for BCA. I'm not saying that at all. What I am saying is that we do have resources and we should be channeling those into helping others to know Christ. It might be through another organisation. It might be through another missional uh, initiative. Friends, only you guys can answer that question. Only you, as you reflect on scripture, are able to discern what that looks like for you. So there's a couple of questions. The first one is this. Have you been reconciled to Christ? to God. Has God done that work of reconciliation and redemption in your life? Second question is, if he has, are you living out what God wants you to live out? Are you caring for one another? Are you using the resources that God has entrusted to you to do that? I pray and hope you are. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have called us to yourself. Therefore, placing on us, or placing us in your family, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, male nor female, bond nor free, we thank you that in you there is no longer any ethnic barriers. 
There is no longer any gender barriers nor social barriers. You have done such a wonderful job as Paul rightly points out. You have made the two one and we ask that you may give us a greater appreciation of this work. Help us to remain focused on the task at hand. We have been reconciled to you through the cross. Help us to make this our goal, to point other people to a reconciliation that works. We ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>